Good evening. So over the last few years, I've always started the new year on Sunday nights talking about how we can be better Bible students, and we've done different lessons along the way in order to encourage that. We're going to encourage that for the next several uh, Sunday nights. I say several, like for the next few months. We're going to look at some of the more misused and abused pieces of Scripture in an effort to not only find out what those pieces of Scripture are actually saying, but along the way to also help us to understand how to be better Bible students, giving us some keys or some tools to help us along the way. I want to start this evening by reading a paragraph. Tell me what you think. A seashore is a better place than the street because you need lots of room. At first, it is better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but is easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Birds seldom get too close. If there are no snags, it can be very peaceful. But if it breaks loose, you won't get another chance. Make sense? Kind of hard to understand, right? It sounds like a bunch of random thoughts put together. But let me give you an interpretive key, all right? The interpretive key is kite. Now listen to it. A seashore is a better place than the street because you need lots of room. At first, it is better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it's easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Birds seldom get too close. If there are no stags, uh, snags, it can be very peaceful. But if it breaks loose, you won't get another chance. Better? Now that you know the interpretive key, it makes a whole lot more sense, right? We don't typically speak in random, isolated thoughts. There's usually a flow or a continuity to our words. Sentences build on the previous thought to produce uh, a coherent um, conversation. It gives the conversation shape and form. Flow of thought is vital to understanding exactly what is being communicated. For instance, we don't talk like this. I was sitting in the deer woods. The grass needed mowing. I once ate a buffalo burger. The car wash is closed on Sundays. The quarterback threw an interception. The doctor says I have high cholesterol. We don't speak like that. Those are random, disjointed sentences that are put together but don't make any sense, right? But when we pluck verses out of context, when we hunt and peck through Scripture, when we proof text our way through the Bible, we can form some random thoughts, it seems, rather than taking the entirety of Scripture and looking at the whole context, the whole story, as it relates to us as students, right? God doesn't communicate in random, disjointed thoughts. And we've got to do the hard work of determining what exactly it is that he is saying. Imagine a European soccer player learning about American football. So in Europe, it's called football. We call our sport football. But think about trying to explain our brand of football to a European soccer fan. You know, in our brand of football... Uh, the defensive and offensive players can use their hands, but only one person kicks. In their brand of football, no one can use their hands except for the goalie, right? Offsides is very different in soccer than it is in football. There's a lot of differences, and it can be very confusing if you don't have context. And so God is speaking to us 
And we've got to do the hard work of interpreting what it is he's exactly trying to say. We cannot just do our own thing. There are rules of interpretation that must be followed if we want to correctly exegete a passage. And I think there are five C's that we need to get very acquainted with. The first C is content. And content is just what you think it is. Content is the database. It's the raw data we're looking at. It's the words on the page. It's the, the, the stuff that we're reading. We are observing the content in an effort to plow through it and properly understand it. That's the first C. Another C is, con, uh, is comparison. This is where we compare Scripture with Scripture because there is a flow. There is an overall picture being painted here in Scripture. And so we compare Scripture with other Scripture to make sure that we're not in contradiction. I mean, we can't have one thought over here that contradicts another thought somewhere else in Scripture. So we do the comparison. The Holy Spirit is the author of the entire Bible. Even though 40 different authors make up these 66 books, he inspired the entire message. To make certain that it was stated precisely as he intended, we, we've got to do the hard work of digging deeper. Another C is culture, and this is very important. I've heard, you know, I've heard folks say, well, you know, culture, you know, is, it, it doesn't matter as much because we live in this day and age. No, culture absolutely matters because this wasn't written to you. This was written to another audience first, and we have to recognize that, and that has to come into the interpretation process, that this was written to someone else, not you. So the Bible wasn't written to you, it was written for you, and we have to understand that. And, and culture means politics, religion, economy, legality, agriculture, clothing, geography, domestic, military, social mores, anything that is unique to a people. The culture of a people has to do with what that group believes, how they think, how they act. So we must always consider the culture when we're reading through a text. Then you have consultation. And consultation is just the sources that you go to outside of Scripture to help you understand Scripture. I've heard people say, well, all you need is the Bible. And that's true in one sense. But we, we mustn't be so arrogant to think that somebody else can't offer some helpful information. All of you have gone outside the Bible to understand the Bible, right? Uh, whether it's commentaries, whether it's lexicons, whether it's Logos Bible software, somewhere, somehow you have gone to something else to help you understand. You've consulted others, perhaps a teacher, a professor, you know, a minister, whatever, to help understand Scripture. We mustn't be so arrogant as to believe that no one else has any insight to offer. Then we have context. And you've heard me say this over and over again. You know, in real estate, the key is location, location, location. When it comes to Bible study, the key is context, context, context. And context is all about the connection between what happened before the passage and what happens after it. In order to understand the context of a passage, we have to observe what surrounds it. And context can apply to a particular passage, a particular book, even the Bible as a whole. In study of a particular book of the Bible, there are two areas of context. You have the literary context, which is the type or style of literature. That is important. A lot of errors have been made in the interpretation of Revelation because it's been seen as a literal take when it's actually apocry apocryphal language. It's colorful language. 
So that's important, right? The type of literature that's being uh, used here. But then the other type of context is historical, cultural context or background. It is a fact that God chose to speak through human writers to address real-life needs of a particular people at a particular time at a particular place and culture. The question is not whether God has given us relevant principles. The question is how God has chose to do so. And so our interpretive approach should properly take into account the way God has chosen to communicate the Scriptures. It's vitally important to keep in mind that each piece of Scripture was God's Word to someone else before it was God's Word to us. We cannot leave the original audience out of the equation. We cannot dismiss their circumstances. This has a major bearing on interpretation because the true meaning of a passage is what God intended it to mean to the original audience. Like when we're going through the parables, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, well couldn't it mean this? Or, or couldn't, couldn't it have meant that? No, it meant one thing. It meant one thing to the people that were hearing it for the first time, and they understood it. It's our job to understand it, right? So we've got to do the hard work to dig deeper and to figure out what God intended it to mean to us, but first of all, to them. We have to determine what it meant to those who first received it before we make the interpretive leap and apply it to our culture. So let's tackle the text we're looking at this evening. Galatians 3, 28. If you want to turn there, let's actually look in verse 15. It says, Brothers and sisters, I speak... In terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as one would in referring to many, but rather as in referring to one and to your seed that is Christ. What I am saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added on account of the violations having been ordered through angels and at the hand of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, but God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Far from it. For if a law had been given that was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has confined everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being confined for the faith that was destined to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our guardian to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for you are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Verse thir uh, 28 is where we're zeroing in tonight. And the reason why this is a commonly misused and abused piece of Scripture is that 
Many in our day and age want to use this as the signature verse for a more egalitarian view of gender roles within the church. That whatever a man can do, a woman can do, and vice versa. That this is the common proof text for that belief. There is neither male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, gender distinctions are removed in Christ. Some have also used this verse to argue that man ruling over woman came as a result of the fall, but now you get to Galatians 3 and the curse has been lifted and therefore man and woman are equal in every respect They can share all the same roles and responsibilities within the church because gender distinctions are no longer at play. Maybe you've heard this verse used for that kind of reasoning. And I want to say this right from the very beginning. You may want to write this down, but hear me on this. We are all equal in the kingdom of God. So let's just get that out of the way. That is absolutely true. We are all equal in the kingdom of God. That's not even up for debate. Now, unfortunately, the discussion of the role of women within the church has been inaccurately displayed or portrayed as an issue about the worth of women, the competency of women, and what society expects of women. The argument is not always framed fairly, and that bothers me. I never want to be a church that oppresses women. I would never be a a part of a church that oppresses women. If this was a church that oppressed women, I'm out of here. And so we've got to frame it accurately and we've got to frame it fairly. Every church member brings value to the table. Every church member. Something Paul set forth in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 34 through 41. Everyone has a role. Everyone has a responsibility. And we mustn't allow the secular to force the issue or to frame the issue. This isn't about oppression of women. Maybe it is somewhere. This isn't about the essence or worth of women. This is about the role and responsibility of all of us within the church. We all have equal standing. But equal standing doesn't mean the same thing as equal responsibility. Now let me, let me clarify this a little bit. There are many principles that bear this out in Scripture, right? Let me, let me show you one of them. Numbers chapter 16. Numbers chapter 16, beginning in verse 1, we see, Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men, and they stood before Moses together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation chosen in the assembly, men of renown. They assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? So Korah's basic argument was, we're all holy. Why does Moses get to do something different? Why does he get special treatment, for instance? And of course, we know, because we can read it after the fact, why Moses and Aaron were chosen for the special responsibility that they had. Moses was divinely appointed by God to lead the people out of Israel, out of slavery towards the promised land. Aaron was appointed to to be his right-hand man, if you will. But Korah reasoned, since all of God's people are holy, then it stands to reason that we should all be on the same page, sharing the same role and the same responsibility. Now, Korah, of course, was tinkering with God's divine plan here. 
Notice verse 9. Is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them, and that he has brought you near Korah and all your brothers, sons of Levi, with you, and you are seeking for the priesthood also? Korah was a Levite. He had a special responsibility that others didn't. And here he was banging on God for having Moses do a special responsibility. But I mean, he was a Levite. Only the Levites got to be priests. He had a special role and responsibility that others did not. Korah had responsibilities that excluded others. And that didn't seem to bother him. So why was he all up in arms about Moses and about his responsibility? Now you can read further in Numbers chapter 16. We don't have time to tonight. And you can see what became of this whole situation, including uh, Korah's demise. But Korah was right about one thing. Here's what he was right about. All of them were holy. That's true. They were all holy. All of God's people were holy. They had a a special relationship with God, but it did not follow that therefore all of them could do the same things. God had special roles and responsibilities for different duties, different people. Role distinctions are not value judgments. If we're going to frame the argument correctly, we have to start there. This is not about essence or worth. Role distinctions are not value judgments. We all have the same essence. We all have the same worth, but God has given different roles and responsibilities. But even these roles and responsibilities, even though they're different, they're all vitally important, right? They're all vitally important. You know what it's called when you interpret a biblical passage based on your own prejudices, based on your own likes and dislikes? You know what we call that? We, we call that asegesis, as opposed to exegesis. Exegesis is the proper way to interpret a passage of Scripture. I know there's some arguments sometimes about certain passages and how they're interpreted, but exegesis is what we're after. Asegesis, also called easy Jesus, asegesis asks the question, what do I want the Bible to say? Or what do I want God to say here? Exegesis asks the question, what is God saying? And God may not be saying what I want him to say. I may not even agree with God. But if I don't agree with what God has said in his word, guess guess what needs to happen? I need to go back and I need to figure it out because I'm the one's wrong, right? To interpret the text to fit my agenda is called asegesis. And it happens all too often. You know, Paul is in no way in Galatians 3.28 making the argument that there are no gender distinctions and no role distinctions. That's not what he's doing. So we can have the discussion about women's role versus men's role and all that. Should we be more egalitarian, complementarian, whatever it is? We can have those discussions. But just know this, in no way is Paul making that argument in Galatians 3.28. And so we need to stop using that as a proof text. Paul's argument is about kingdom equality. That's it. That's the basis for his words in Galatians 3, 28. That is the context of verse 28. In fact, the book of Galatians is focused on one major issue. The heretical notion that Gentiles had to be circumcised and observe the law of Moses in order to be accepted by God. That's the whole issue at hand. 
For the Jew, circumcision determined who was in and who was out. And why is this important? Well, because who was in and who was out was the determining factor as to who would receive the inheritance. Blessing was a big deal to the Jewish culture. Receiving your blessing was a huge deal. Go back and read Jacob and Esau sometime, right? That's a huge deal. And the Jews couldn't have the lowly, disgusting Gentiles sharing in their inheritance. And so they were making demands. And Paul is saying it's not about that. It's not about circumcision. It's not about cutting away your flesh. It's about the indwelling of the Spirit. Do you have the Spirit? That's what it's about. That's the sign, not circumcision. Paul blows up their thinking by pointing out that the circumcision has nothing to do with it, that faith in Jesus is what it's all about. Notice his words again, verse 26. For you are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Folks, the people hearing this for the first time, no doubt, probably said, excuse me? Like this would have floored them. Because there was definitely lines of demarcation. Jew and Gentile were not on the same page. Men and women were not on the same page. They didn't have that equal standing, right? You want to talk about culture, women didn't enjoy the same privileges and rights that we do today, women do today. So they must have been thinking, what in the world are you talking about? But he's talking about kingdom equality. And the key phrase is, if you belong to Christ. That's what it all boils down to. If you belong to Christ, that's the distinction. Not circumcision, not your ancestry, not your heritage. You are all spiritual Israel if you are in Christ. Paul isn't saying, hey, now that you're a Christian, the color of your skin doesn't matter. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that doesn't matter. He's not saying your race and your ethnicity no longer matters. He's not saying that. He doesn't, he's not saying it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. He's, that's not what he's getting at. He's not removing the distinctions. He's removing the divisions. There was a clear divide between Jews and Gentiles, between men and women, between slaves and free. There was a clear line of demarcation between all the groups that Paul mentions, but not anymore. Men, women, slaves, Gentiles are all considered one in Christ. All are equal heirs to the promise made to Abraham. And really what bugs me most when we pluck verses like this out of context and make them say something that they don't, what bugs me the most about it is that it ruins the story. Remember the story? Go back to Genesis chapter 12. And in Genesis chapter 12, beginning of verse 1, it reads, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God makes Abram a promise. He promises to bless him. He promises to bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. 
He promises to make a great nation out of him. God says, you are to be a blessing and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And this blessing involves three things. And you've heard me say it over and over again. The three things are the land, Genesis 12, 1 and verse 7 as well. That land was fulfilled in the days of Joshua and Solomon. There's the nation, Genesis 12 and 2, that was fulfilled through the descendants of Israel. And then there's the seed. That's verse 3. That was fulfilled with the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. Land, nation, seed. All three of those things are involved in the blessing, the promise. The fulfillment of these promises to Abraham is the entire theme of the Bible. Okay? The entire theme of the Bible. Every book of the Bible is concerned with God's relationship to the descendants of Abraham. Go check it yourself. Every single book of the Bible is concerned with God's relationship to the descendants of Abraham. He adopted them, made a covenant with them, he multiplied them, he gave them the promised land. And you come to the New Testament, you come to Galatians chapter 3, and you see the storyline hasn't changed. We sometimes look at the Old Testament and the New Testament as two different books with two different stories. No, no, no. It's the same story. In fact, you go from Malachi to Matthew, and there's an assumption made. You start in Matthew, there's an assumption that everything that you've read up to this point makes sense, and now you're over here in Matthew. You know what went on before. The storyline hasn't changed. The story is the same. What has changed in Galatians is that God has widened the circle. He's made the circle bigger. It's no longer about Jews. It's no longer about circumcision. It's no longer about following the law. It's no longer about, you know, worshiping in the temple. It's no longer uh, uh, about those kind of things. The most Jewish thing you can do is now put your life in the hands of Christ to become a child of God. If you belong to Christ, Paul says, that was the plan all along. All those who pledged their loyalty to King Jesus have become sons of Abraham and heirs to the promises that God made to Abraham. So a Gentile, a female, a slave, a dedicated Jew, a Gentile landowner, all of it, all of them become heirs according to promise. The circle has been widened. And every disciple of Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. The same Paul in Romans chapter 8 writes this. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Paul's keeping with the storyline. It's the same story. Adoption, the covenants, the glory, the law, temple worship, the promises, they all belong to Israel. In fact, one of the major questions Paul addresses in Romans is whether or not God has broken his promise to Israel. It's one of the major questions. Is God unfaithful? Has he rejected the Jews in favor of the Gentiles? And Paul's answer, of course, is an emphatic no, he hasn't. God hasn't broken but fulfilled. He has widened the circle so that both Jew and Gentile have been spiritually adopted and now all are granted access to the kingdom. God has widened the circle. And that circle now includes a multiracial, multi-ethnic people whose flesh doesn't have to be cut away, but rather had to be filled with the Spirit. Circumcision is no longer the sign that you belong to God. The sign that you belong to God is now, are you filled with the Spirit? But all that gets lost, and the story gets ruined 
when we don't accurately portray Scripture. When we pluck a verse out of context and make it fit our pet agenda. How many of you have seen the Lord of the Rings movies? Okay. Uh, David, how would you describe Lord of the Rings to somebody who hasn't seen it? Put you on the spot, didn't I? Okay, before you answer, let me, let, me, let me give you an answer. See what you think about this. Group spends nine hours returning jewelry. I mean, that's basically it, right? Would you, would you agree? Or how about Star Wars? How would you explain Star Wars to someone who has never seen it? Any of the movies. How about this? Father reunites with long-lost son and wants him to take over the family business. That's pretty accurate, isn't it? How about Shrek? You guys have seen Shrek? How about this? Guy learns to love a girl without her Instagram filters. That's pretty much it. How about Beauty and the Beast? Beauty and the Beast, okay? Beauty and the Beast, young girl with mental illness, talks to furniture and marries her kidnapper. Those aren't wrong. I mean, those are accurate summaries of the movie, but they're rather vague, aren't they? There's a whole lot of gaps that have to be filled in there. There's a whole lot more that needs to be said to explain what these movies are about. There's more of a storyline than what I just read. While they may offer insight to what the movie is about, they fall well short of accurately depicting the major theme and storyline. And that's precisely what happens when we revert to easy Jesus or Jesus, rather than exegesis, when we don't follow the rules, when we hunt and peck, when we proof text, or we pull a verse out of context and make it stand alone or make it fit our personal agenda. Let's do the hard work of digging deep, and let's let the Bible humbly trouble us. Like I said, there's only two answers, God's and everyone else's, and everyone else is wrong if they don't agree with God, Right? So, it's up to us to determine what it is that God is saying and to accurately divide the Word of God. Let's pray. Most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we're thankful for another day, another opportunity to come and learn more about you, about your Word, and may we, may we seek to rightly divide your Word, may we seek to live by it, and may we seek to promote it, to share the gospel with others. We are people of the story. And may we always remember our part. And may we always present the story to others so that they can be a part as well. Thank you so much for widening the circle. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. If you have a need tonight that we can help you with, be glad to pray with you. If you'd like to study the Bible with someone, please let us know that. Um, if you're ready to put on Christ in baptism, if you're ready to begin a daily walk with him and, and you know, be a disciple of his, and certainly we can take care of that as well. I hope you think it's been a good day. I believe it's been a good day together. And let's go out. Let's make sure that we are uh, seeking to change our little part of the world by presenting Christ and uh, showing others what he looks like. David's going to lead us in a song. If we can help you, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.